Hi, it's Dr. Gregory. Today we're going to review Bio 210 Lab 1 and we're just going to briefly talk about the rules for the lab as a reminder. So first off, rule number one, of course, must have closed toed shoes and closed heel shoes. No bare feet at all. Rule number two, you must have shirts that cover your shoulders and upper arms. No sleeveless shirts, no spaghetti straps, nothing that's going to expose your shoulder. Also, your shirt must cover your midriff. This is to protect you from things like splashes on the counter. Rule number three, we must also have hairbands for people with long hair. That way our hair cannot get into whatever we're working on and or catch a fire or become dirty or get in our specimens. Uh, another lab rule would be washing hands. Wash them when you come into the lab, wash them when you're done with lab, particularly for handling anything that could get on your hands, even if you're wearing gloves. Uh, another rule, please do not touch anything when you come into lab class. If something is set up, it's set up there for a reason, so please do not touch things. Uh, and another rule, very important, is when we are disposing of any specimens, please follow the rules provided by your lab instructor. A complete list of rules will be handed out in class for you to sign and uh, if you have any questions of course reach out to me. Today we're going to go through lab one we're going to hit on some highlights uh, and as we go through it please feel free to write down any questions you might have and email me and or ask me in class. So body cavities within the body we have a bunch of different cavities and what are these cavities? Well these cavities are discrete spaces that exist within the body and these discrete spaces hold something in particular. From up high, superiorly, we have the cranial cavity holds the brain, which is contiguous or connected to the vertebral cavity. The vertebral cavity holds our spinal cord. If we move inferiorly, we end up in the thoracic cavity. Now the thoracic cavity has a couple different parts to it. Um, the primary, when we th primarily think about the thoracic cavity, we're thinking about the lungs. We also have within the thoracic cavity two other regions. We have the mediastinum and we have the pericardial space or pericardial cavity. This is the area that holds the heart and the superior mediastinum holds the uh, trachea, esophagus, uh, as well as the thymus and some blood vessels. The thoracic cavity and the abdominal cavity is separated by a muscular layer called the diaphragm, our primary muscle of respiration. Our abdominal cavity and our pelvic cavity are sometimes considered one, the abdominal pelvic cavity, and that's because there is no discrete separation between the two. There's no pleural membranes or pleural layers, but we divide them in the two because in the pelvic cavity we have certain organs and in the abdominal cavity we have certain organs. So the first would be the abdominal cavity is primarily our digestive organs, including, but not limited to, our liver, gallbladder, stomach, spleen, pancreas, small intestine, and large intestine, as well as a whole bunch of blood vessels and lots of other stuff. Our pelvic cavity, it's primarily home to our internal reproductive organs. That would include things like the urinary bladder, uh, the internal female reproductive organs like the vagina, the uterus, the fallopian tubes, and the ovaries. And in, in the case of men, it would be the prostate, uh, seminal vesicles, and a couple other uh, glands. Now, these cavities are all lined by membranes. These membranes have a couple different parts to them. 
the membranes have an internal part which lines the organs and an external part which lines the actual cavity itself. Now the difference between the two is that the part that lines the cavity would be called the parietal pleura, depending upon where you are, the parietal pericardium, the parietal peritoneum, a peritoneum, depending upon your perspective, and uh, the visceral internal lining. Now, the visceral lining is a more of a, a fibrous but loose connective tissue that uh, sort of attaches that to the external or the parietal pleura. The outer covering is a very dense, thick connective tissue. It is water. Um, it can hold water it can, and, and it can hold the um, cavities separate from each other. So it provides a boundary, a physical boundary that prevents uh, things like infections uh, or uh, damage from, from spreading to other parts of the body. In the case of the lungs, it's very important because that outer part provides a airtight space for the lungs to adhere to. So the lungs, which are not uh, muscular, they, they are simply elastic, stick to the sides of the inside of the thoracic cavity, to that parietal pleura, and that's what allows us to breathe, not because the lungs are moving, but because the ribs are moving and the lungs go along for the ride. We're going to run through a couple of organs and organ systems. First, of course, the integumentary system. When we think of the integumentary system, we primarily think of the skin, but our skin has a couple important parts. We have hair, we, of course we have nails, but the two, the sweat glands and the sebaceous glands. Sweat glands' primary job is going to be thermal regulation, to keep the body cool when we are hot. Uh, in addition, the hair have individual muscle fibers. These muscle fibers are called uh, erector pili, P-I-L-I, and these cause the uh, hair fibers in the, in the whole shaft to stand up, which gives us the, what we think of as goosebumps. Now, when you contract like that, you're actually sort of closing off all the, the blood vessels in there. You're trying to lose heat. So when you're cold or have certain emotional responses, you get goosebumps because your body's just trying to respond to keep it warm. Now, the sebaceous glands, those are the glands that we think about uh, when we think about oil on the skin. Some of us have hyperactive sebaceous glands, particularly when we're going through puberty, and the sebaceous glands themselves are contiguous or attached to the hair follicles. And so oftentimes they'll get clogged up, and when they get clogged up, what we get commonly known as pimples are called comedones. We have open comedones and closed comedones, which I'm sure we'll talk about in another class at some point. Uh, now, the skin itself, the integumentary system, some people consider it the largest organ in the body. Uh, we will not classify it as a as a quote-unquote organ but it has a, a very important part in the immunity of the body and also protecting our body from water loss the next organ system we'll talk about specifically is the skeletal system the skeletal system has three main components bones ligaments and cartilage so the ligaments hold the bones together that they connect the bones and the cartilage rides between the bone surfaces, it creates a joint. We'll talk about that when we get into the skeletal lab. The next one is the muscular system. The muscular system primary components are muscles and tendons. Tendons hold the muscles to the bones. We mentioned this in lab, but one of the problems with ligaments and tendons in general is that they are avascular. They have no blood supply, which means it takes a long time for them to heal. The next system we'll talk about is the nervous system. Primarily, we're talking about the central and peripheral nervous system. 
We have a, we have a third nervous system that some people uh, may have learned to call the enteric nervous system, which is primarily our digestive system and the, the gut control. But we're going to primarily stick to the central and peripheral nervous system. The central is, of course, the brain and spinal cord. And, uh, and depending upon your perspective, some of the cranial nerves which arise from the brain, some people do consider that part of the central nervous system. We're not going to classify that today. We'll talk about that more when we get the neurology. Uh, but in addition, we have nerves. Primarily, when we think of nerves, we think of spinal nerves. That is the nerves that arise from the spinal cord that go to everything within our body that, that's going to innervate, whether it be sensory organs, whether they be muscular control, lots of different types of nerves. The next system we're going to touch on is the endocrine system. The endocrine system has a bunch of different glands, and it's one of those systems that it's based uh, it's it's named based on its function. It, it create, creates hormones, but these glands do all sorts of different things. So we're going to run through a couple of the glands that are most common, and we'll talk about their basic function. Of course, we have the pineal gland. Pineal gland's primary function is to create melatonin for sleep. Coming down, we have the pituitary gland located sort of in the base of the skull. When we do the skull, we'll see that it sits in this thing called the cella tersica. The pituitary gland primarily secretes growth hormones, so it is contributes to growth. The next gland we have is the thymus. The thymus gland is is primarily dormant in uh, adults. It's very active in young kids and can become reactivated at different times in people's lives. But the thymus gland primarily is responsible for uh, developing our immune system. It creates T cells, T for thymus, T cells. The next gland is the thyroid gland. The thyroid gland is responsible for metabolism. And this is when we think about glands. This is the one, the big one we think about because people have hypo or hyperthyroidism, and uh, this one controls our metabolic metabolic rate or metabolic rate and our metabolism in general. If it's not working well enough, it'll slow down our metabolism. We tend to gain weight. If it's working too much, we actually will lose weight because our our, our thermostat set too high is is ultimately how we describe it. The next gland located on the thyroid gland is the parathyroid gland. These are four little glands that sit on the back corners of the thyroid, and we'll talk about them when we get into the, the system specifically. The parathyroid gland is responsible for calcium regulation. Now, calcium is very important because it exists throughout our body, not just in the bones, but within all of our cells because it's involved in nerve conduction. It's involved in muscle contraction. It's got a lot of functions, so we definitely want to make sure we're properly regulating our calcium. And the parathyroid gland acts on the kidneys specifically to either excrete extra calcium or stop excreting calcium if we're a little on the low side. The next set of glands are the adrenal glands, also called the what also called the suprarenal glands. Now that suprarenal is a good name because it tells us where they're located. They're located supra above renal, the kidneys. But the adrenal glands, which we commonly call them, have three distinct regions, and when we get into the glands, we'll actually talk about this specifically, but the three distinct regions secrete three different types of hormone groups. Um, the one we think of most would be something like adrenaline and noradrenaline, where the term adrenal comes from. Adrenaline is the, responsible for fight or flight, but we have a whole bunch of other hormones that are secreted, um, catecholamine, sex hormones, a bunch of different ones, and we'll talk about that when we get to that section. In moving inferiorly again, the next gland would be the pancreas. Pancreas is primarily responsible from an endocrine standpoint for regulating glucose levels in the body by absorbing or not absorbing sugar from the, you know, from the digestive system into the blood. So 
the other side of the pancreas, which is not part of the endocrine system, was, is actually part of the digestive system, is the exocrine function. So we're primarily talking about the glucose metabolism. The next glands as we move inferiorly in women would be the ovaries. The ovaries uh, as a gland primarily secretes hormones responsible for either regulating the menstrual cycle or maintaining a pregnancy. Power off. In addition, the ovaries will function to create female gametes. Moving inferiorly, we have the testes in men. The testes live outside the body. Their, its primary function besides making sperm, male gametes, is the production of testosterone. Moving on to the next organ system, we're going to talk about the cardiovascular system very briefly. Cardiovascular system contains the heart and, of course, the blood vessels. They work in tandem to make sure we bring oxygenated blood throughout the body and then deoxygenated blood back to the lungs for reoxygenization. Not much to say more about that one until we get into that system. Now, the lymphatic system. Lymphatic system is one of those amazing systems. It's heavily involved in our immune system. And primary components would be lymphatic vessels and or lymph nodes that exist throughout the body. And uh, in addition, we have the spleen, the thymus, um, and then the lymphatic vessels. Lymphatic vessels are simply pathways that travel within the tissues. And those, those tissues, uh, th these vessels rather, carry fluid from the tissues to ultimately to wherever they want to go, which whether they're carrying fat cells, you know, to, for fat digestion to the liver, or whether they're carrying um, waste products that they want to dump into the system to be filtered. There's a bunch of different things. And we'll talk about that as we go along. Uh, very, very important for uh, moving fluids within the body and also for our, our, excuse me, our immune system. The next system we'll talk about is the respiratory system. Respiratory system has several distinct regions and a lot of functions. So the functions are either going to be to exchange oxygen for carbon dioxide or to transport that to and from. So orally and the nasally, we have the oral cavity and the nasal cavity where are ways we can bring air in. We have our pharynx, our trachea, or pharynx, larynx, and then the trachea. Um, we shared the pharynx with the digestive system from the standpoint of moving food, the oral pharynx, but we, we have to get this epiglottis to, to open up so we can move air. We have the trachea, which is going to ascend from about the level of uh, T1 down to the lungs, and then it's going to split into what are called main stem bronchi. And these uh, then these sub bronchi will split and further split and further split until they get down to the lowest level of function, which is the alveoli. And we'll talk about the respiratory system as we go along later in the semester. Now, one of the busiest systems and one of the more complex systems is the digestive system. And our digestive system isn't just our stomach, and that's what most people think about. Um, we, we start with our digestive system all the way up in the salivary glands, the sublingual salivary glands, the parotid salivary glands, those are the ones located in our cheek, as well as our teeth and our tongue, and lips for that matter. They're all involved in the very early digestion. We have to use them in concert with each other to, uh, to break up food, to make it into swallowable, ch swallowable chunks. The whole intention is to pre-digest or start the digestive process. Now, we then have the esophagus. The esophagus, once we swallow or begin the, the act of swallowing, we're physically moving food to the back. It creates a reflex reaction that allows a motion uh, that will travel or push food down the esophagus to the stomach. Then we hit the stomach. The stomach's primary function, primary function is to further break down food and then churn it into a mash that we can then move to the small intestine. 
the stomach will will move stuff down to the small intestine once it reaches a certain consistency and a pH. The pH level is sort of the key that gets it to, to move into the small intestine. Now within the small intestine, and oh, there's a whole bunch of hormones involved in this process, which we'll talk about a little bit later in the semester, but the, the small intestine's primary function is absorption of nutrients. When we think about the different small and large intestine, most food absorption occurs in the small intestine. The large intestine's primary function is absorption of water. So we take that slurry that we have in the stomach and we put it into the small intestine. We hit it with a bunch of different uh, enzymes to break up the food further. And as it travels through our small intestine, it slowly gets the nutrients slowly get absorbed, and then it hits the large intestine. Within the large intestine, what's left isn't much nutrition, but there's a lot of water, and we need to compact that water uh, so we can have well-formed stool when we ultimately defecate. Now, other accessory organs within the digestive system, of course, is the liver. The liver secretes bile, which is collected in the gallbladder, and the gallbladder releases that bile for the digestion of fats when it gets the right signal from the stomach. And that si the signal is a hormone called cholecystokinase, and this hormone um, that gets secreted says, hey, we got some fat, dump some bile, and so the gallbladder will contract. We also have the pancreas, which I mentioned uh, briefly a few minutes ago. Its primary function would be to uh, secrete exocrine uh, or um, f hormones or exocrine substances, rather, that like uh, amylase and uh, protease, things there that are going to break up those substances, primarily either starches or proteins. The whole intention is that we can then break those down and absorb them in the small intestine. A couple other reproductive uh, systems and uh, urinary systems we're going to talk about just real briefly. The urinary system, of course, is the kidneys, ureters, urinary bladder, and urethra. Now, what's interesting about the kidneys is technically they're in the abdominal cavity, but they are retroperitoneal. That is, they are outside the peritoneal space. They are not within the same space that we see the digestive system and, uh, and the stomach and everything. They sit behind that, right up against the ribs and just below the ribs. Then we have the ureters, which carry fluid or basically the, the precursor to urine that we're going to expel from the kidneys down uh, through the uh, pelvic cavity into the urinary bladder. The urinary bladder is going to then hold it, and the urinary bladder is made up of a cool thing called transitional epithelium. So it lets the, the epithelial cells stretch out so you can really expand a lot to hold a lot of urine. And then we pass that urine from our bladder through your urethra to the outside. Female reproductive system-wise, we primarily think about the ovaries uh, from a reproduction standpoint, making the gametes, the, the egg cells, or, or developing the egg cells in something called the follicle, and then also supporting that egg cell if it becomes fertilized until it can implant in the uterine wall and then further develop a um, sac around it at the placenta. We have uterine slash fallopian tubes. Um, some people use the term uterine tubes. Some people use the term fallopian tubes. Uh, I primarily use the term fallopian tubes just because that's how I learned it. Uh, and the fallopian tubes are primary, primarily a transport system that transport the egg cells, the oocytes, to the uterus. Although most of the time, fertilization of that egg occurs in the fallopian tubes. The fallopian tubes connect to the top of the uterus. And within the uterus, uh, we have a lining, the endometrial lining. And during the phase uh, of pregnancy where the egg is released, if, if the timing is just right and you can fertilize that egg, that endometrial lining is rich in nutrients and blood vessels. 
and the egg can implant in the wall and to further develop or if it doesn't the that interior lining will slough off and cause the, the bleeding phase of the menstrual cycle uh, further components the vagina the clitoris and the vulva so the vagina's primary function um, besides you know sex is also for delivering delivering the baby so it, it has a tremendous amount of flexibility um, and you have to push a baby through there well, excuse me women have to push a baby through there uh, and so it has a, as I said a lot of flexibility and quite a bit of stretchiness the clitoris and vulva as external genitalia or ge external sex organs um, have a, an important role in the act of, of either pregnancy and or the movement or mobility of sperm. Um, during the act of intercourse, when those are stimulated properly, they can cause the cervix to dip down into the base or the floor of the uterus. And that dipping down of the cervix can um, sort of encourage sperm to travel up into the cervix to fertilize the egg. Moving on to the male reproductive system, we think primarily of the testes uh, for the production of sperm, but the testes are involved with a couple other parts uh, to make the sperm, um, and the testes reside externally in the scrotum. They reside in the scrotum because of temperature. The temperature needs to be slightly below body temperature to primarily to make correct sperm or make good sperm. If the temperature is too high, the testes will uh, lower within the scrotum, or if it's too cold, they will raise within the scrotum. Uh, and that's a function of some muscles which reside uh, within the scrotum and attached to the, the uh, pelvis. A couple other parts, ductus deferens, uh, epididymis, this is these are parts that either are involved in moving sperm or developing sperm, uh, or the sperm cells. And we have a couple other glands, the seminal vesicles, responsible for creating seminal fluid, which will help neutralize the pH um, of the urethra. So if there is any urine res uh, residue left over, it'll help um, protect the sperm from the pH difference. The prostate makes primarily fluid. That prostatic fluid is um, high in nutrients for the sperm, high in sugars primarily, so that the sperm have some food to make that long trip into the uh, from the vagina into the cervix up into the uterus and ultimately to the fallopian tubes to fertilize the egg. Um, other glands, of course, the bobolethal glands uh, are going to secrete more substances both for lubrication and also for um, you know lubricating the, the glands. And then the last thing, of course, is the penis responsible for uh, entering the vagina to um, functionally insert sperm where we can fertilize an egg. Now we're going to take a step in a different direction. We're going to talk about the abdominal region. Now we ha we talked in during lab about two different ways to break up the abdominal region. Um, we had talked about the anatomist method and we talked about um, the clinical method. And the anatomist method break it into nine regions. And this nine regions divides them into um, parts that are specific to different organs and or organ systems. So when we have the epigastric region, that's right in the middle of the top. That epigastric region, epi means around, gastric meaning stomach. This is a, an area where most of our stomach is located, um, so epigastric. Right and left, it's hypochondriac. If you look at the picture on the screen, you'll see hypo means below. Chondriac is referring to the cartilage um, that goes to the ribs, the chondral cartilage or, or costal chondral cartilage. Um, and so this is the area just below the angle of the ribs and superiorly that's going to hold the liver, um, going to hold the spleen, um, you know, part of the stomach on the left. 
gallbladder, th those organs will be in those regions. Then we get to the middle region. It's almost like tic-tac-toe here. In the middle, all the way on the right, we have the lumbar or right lateral region, the lumbar region. And this region is primarily going to be large intestine and a little bit of small intestine. We have the umbilical region in the middle, primarily small intestine, a little bit, little bit of a transverse colon at the top. And then all the way on the left lateral side, we have more small intestine and then the part of the descending colon. The last row, the bottom row, we have the iliac region laterally. So on the right iliac region, we primarily have the uh, small intest uh, large intestine and some of the small intestine. We have the suprapelvic region, um, a suprapubic region or the hypogastric region that's right at the bottom of the middle. Hypo meaning below, gastric meaning stomach. This is the bottom part of the, the stomach or the digestive system. Primarily we see here is uh, small intestine. From, from the standpoint of palpation, if we were to palpate deep, we would start to see the, the actual part of the colon as it attaches to the rectum. But you know, if we're looking at the stomach just superficially, this is we're gonna see small intestine. If we move all the way to the left, the left inguinal region, again, we'll see some descending uh, colon um, and a little bit of small intestine. Now, that's great from an anatomy standpoint, but clinically, we break it up into four quadrants. And why do we break into four quadrants? Because people generally complain of pain, uh, you know, up high, down low, and left or right, and or both. So we have a right upper quadrant. The primary components of the right upper quadrant are going to be our liver, our part of our transverse colon, um, and uh, the gallbladder, um, and a little bit of the stomach. If we move to the left, we see the left upper quadrant, we're gonna see the spleen, part of the liver, the stomach, the pancreas, um, you know, we're going to see these organs. And so when someone has a complaint in that area, we're thinking, oh, right upper quadrant pain, or that's where they have tenderness. We can think of an issue with those particular organs. Now, the dividing line between upper and lower is the bottom of the transverse colon. So bottom of the, the large intestine as it travels across the abdomen. And so right below that, the right lower quadrant, we're going to see the um, part of the, the large intestine, the ascending colon, we're gonna see half of the um, small intestine. And then on the left uh, lower quadrant, we're gonna see large intestine, uh, descending colon, as well as the bottom part, something called the sigmoid colon. And then we're gonna see the remainder of the small intestine. So a right upper quadrant, left upper quadrant, right lower quadrant, left lower quadrant. And we would use this system clinically to describe where someone's experiencing pain, like the patient reports pain in the right upper quadrant after meals or Pain, uh, patient experiences pain in the left lower quadrant after a bowel movement. Or when we're doing some palpation, upon depalpation of the right upper quadrant, uh, patient reports a severe pain at something called McBurney's point, which would be consistent with a, some sort of gallbladder issue. Or you could talk about deep upper left, left upper quadrant uh, palpation laterally exhibits pain, which could be consistent with a spleen problem potentially. So we're going to move on to the next section and if, and if you were in class you'll recall we talked about anatomical position and anatomical position is standing with your feet hip width apart your hands on at your side with the palms facing forward so this position this anatomical position is how we would always describe the body in whatever position would you know we take that position back to anatomical position so Within this, we then describe what are called anatomical planes. Anatomical planes are a way to divide the body up into different 
ways of looking at how the body is positioned and how the body moves. And anatomical planes are, they seem much more complicated than, the, than they really are. But if you remember, we had this sagittal plane. The sagittal plane would divide the body into right and left portions. If it's right down the middle, it would be mid-sagittal or median plane. And this, this would divide the body into equal left and right halves because skeletally we're um, bilaterally symmetrical. That is, we are the same left and right. Not organ-wise, there's a little difference there, but if you were to divide the body up into left and right, you could get, you could get halves. However, you can do a sagittal plane really far out laterally either direction, um, and you'd get a right portion and a left portion. Remember, if you were to put that knife, you put your hand into a straight knife edge, you'd be looking at your index finger. It'd be straight in front of your face. That would be the sagittal plane. Now, the next is the coronal plane, also called the frontal plane. The coronal plane divides the body into a front and back portion, a front half or back half. Well, a half doesn't really work because the body is not symmetrical front to back. So we would describe it as having an anterior portion and a posterior portion. This would be a way of dividing the body so that you had two parts, front and back. Now, the next plane is the transverse plane or horizontal plane. This transverse plane or horizontal plane divides the body into an upper portion and a lower portion. Now, why are these planes important? These planes are important um, for two reasons. One, we use it to describe motion from a kinesiological standpoint. If you're a physical therapist or in my case, a chiropractor or a surgeon or someone who's describing either motion or movement within the body, you would use these planes to, to, um, to talk about you know, how you're moving. If you're a radiologist or a sonographer, someone who's doing diagnostic imaging on the body, we would also use these planes as a reference point for describing what we're looking at. So we're looking at axial plane or a transverse plane to look at the different organs or the spine, whatever we're looking at. So let's talk about movement within these planes real quick. In the front, frontal or coronal plane, that, that is the sort of side-to-side -side plane, we would see someone doing lateral flexion within the trunk. They would be moving side-to-side, -side, head, neck, trunk. Or within the arms and legs, they don't do uh, lateral flexion. We would do what? Abduction, abduction, and adduction. Abduction, abduction is moving the arms and legs away from the trunk. So, like for example, bringing your arm away from your side to above your head. Or of the leg, it would be bringing the leg out to the side. Abduction. Think about doing a jumping jack with your legs fully spread and your arms up in the air. That would be sort of full abduction. And then when you do the jumping jack and you bring the leg, the arms down to the side and the feet together, that would be full adduction, bringing the arms to the side, adduction. You're adding to the midline. That would be adduction. Now, within the front, I'm sorry, within the sagittal plane, movement would be flexion or extension. And that term works both for the spine and for the extremities. That would be flexion, extension, flexion of the fingers, flexion of the elbow, flexion of the shoulder. This is movement within that sagittal plane. We describe it as anterior motion primarily. There's one exception, specifically the knee, um, and the toes work a little bit differently too. And then the last one we talked about was the horizontal plane or the transverse plane. Movement within this plane is primarily rotation. That is, we are going to rotate our head, we'll rotate our trunk, we'll rotate our arms and legs, and those occur within the transverse plane. We're going to review a little directional terminology, and then we'll talk about some landmarks, and then we'll be done for this episode. The first one we have, um, well, first off, directional terminology is always paired. If you have one, you must have another one because they're description. If you have anterior, you must have posterior. Anterior is towards the front, also known as ventral. Posterior is to the back, also known as dorsal. 
So anterior and posterior, aka ventral and dorsal. But we can also have up and down. We have superior, which is towards the head, and inferior is not towards the floor. It's towards the tailbone or towards the bottom of the trunk. We have medial and lateral. Now, we use these terms medial and lateral to describe towards the midline or away from the midline. However, we can use this in the arms and legs. It's all about reference. So if I'm back in anatomical position and I'm talking about my thumb versus my pinky, my thumb would be lateral because it's further away from the midline, and my pinky would be medial. All right, we got that down. Good. Now, we also have a couple other terms, proximal and distal and superficial and deep. Proximal and distal is only used in the appendicular skeleton, the arms and the legs. Now, if we're talking about something that's proximal, it means it's closer to the trunk or closer to the, that, the attachment point. Distal would be further from the trunk. So if you're comparing two parts, you could say the wrist is what? The wrist is distal to the elbow. Or we could say the elbow is proximal to the wrist. Now, we don't really use it that way. We use it more to describe um, sort of someone's symptoms or a complaint. So if I have a, and I mentioned this in class, if I had a cervical disc herniation, I would describe pain radiating from proximal to distal. Versus if I had an ascending infection in my hand and my finger has a really bad infection, I had developed cellulitis, I might describe the symptoms as radiating from my finger up into my hand from distal to proximal. All right, two other terms, superficial and deep. Specifically, superficial and deep have to do with location. So if we're talking about organs, we could say that uh, the gallbladder is deep where the, the liver is more superficial. But this could also be used in reference to muscles. We have muscles which are superficial, muscles which are deep. And also can be used to describe palpation. Upon deep palpation, uh, patient elicited um, moderate to severe pain. Or upon superficial uh, palpation, we, we note that the, there's a change in the skin texture or temperature or whatever it might be. So we're going to move on to anterior landmarks. We're going to run through this pretty quick because we did this in class. But we'll say cephalic refers to the head. Otic, O-T-I-C, not the eye, refers specifically to the ear as in an otoscope. Nasal for the nose, acromial, this is the top of the shoulder, the acromion process of the scapula, that's the highest point of the shoulder, acromial. Brachial specifically for the arm, now that's the arm we think is the humerus, not the forearm. Then we get carpal, carpal specifically referring to the wrist, wrist. digital refers to the fingers. Moving back up to the head, we have orbital refers to the eye socket. Uh, which is composed of multiple bones. Buccal or buccal, depending upon where you're from, refers specifically to the cheek. Oral refers to the oral cavity. Mental refers to the chin, the mental process of the mandible. Cervical refers to the neck. Frontal could refer to the frontal bone of the forehead or just the front of the, towards the front of the body. Axillary specifically refers to the quote-unquote armpit. This is the area located between the pectoralis muscle and the latissimus dorsi muscle. And, um, but there's a whole bunch of things in the axillary compartment that we'll talk about when we get into uh, a little bit of neurology. Antibrachial is referring to the front of the arm, antibrachial. Moving down a couple to antecubital refers specifically to the front of the elbow, the front of the elbow. That would be where they would draw blood, an antecubital vein. Uh, then we have the palmer. Palmer is referring specifically to the palm. Mammary was specifically referring to the breast. Sternal, of course, referring to the sternum, right in the middle of the chest. Pectoral is specifically referring to the pec muscles. Then we go a little further down. We get abdominal, anything having to do with the abdominal cavity. Umbilical, which is the belly button. 
inguinal, which is the connection between the hip and uh, the trunk. That would be the inguinal region or uh, inguinal crease. Genital, specifically referring to the external, ex exterior genitalia. Coxal, C-O-X-A-L, specifically refers to the hip. Not the coccygeus or a coccygeal region, but this is the coxal, C-O-X-A-L. This has to do with the original word for hip, which used to be called the os coxae. And we're not going to ever talk, ask you about that in class, but that's why it has the term coxal. C-O-X-A-L refers to the hip. Femoral refers to the femur, the thigh bone. Patellar refers specifically to the kneecap, the patella. Tarsal refers to the ankle bones. Crural refers to the lower leg. And pedal specifically refers, in this case, to the top of the foot, or the foot in general. Posterior landmarks include occipital, the base of the skull. Vertebral, referring to the whole spinal cord in general. Um, I could refer to the cervical or thoracic or lumbar vertebral regions, but vertebral is referring specifically to the whole spine. Acromial, posteriorly, we can see the top of the acromial process, acromion process of the scapula, which would be, again, a posterior landmark. Brachial will be the back of the arm. Cubital will be the elbow. Then we get to the lumbar spine, specifically the sacral region. Gluteal, um, the gluteus maximus, gluteus minimus, gluteus medius. Those are the buttock muscles. Perennial is the region, or excuse me, I did it again. Perineal. Uh, perineal is the region between the anus and the external genitalia. It's that uh, short region. Femoral, specifically to the femur, uh, posteriorly. Popliteal is the back of the knee. Crural refers to the lower limb versus sural, S-U-R-A-L, refers specifically to the posterior calf. Um, those, two are, those two are older terms. Um, we, we do have a sural nerve and we have some other sural things that we talk about, um, not I mean, in general, but not in this class. Um, so I would not ask you something about those two terms specifically, um, but they're ones you should know for any sort of exams or quizzes we have. Calcaneal specifically refers to the heel bone and, of course, plantar refers to the bottom of the foot. All right, so that was what we went through on lab one, which was parts of the body. If you have any questions or problems, feel free to shoot me an email, and I look forward to seeing you in lab next time. Have a great day.